Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week we're continuing our read-through of Mockingjay, reading chapter 19. Could you start us off with a recap of what happens in this chapter? So Boggs is angry after getting off the phone with Coin, and he and Katniss both agree that Coin wants her dead. He explains to Katniss that since she is the face of the rebellion, she has significant influence that could affect who the next leader of Panem is. And if she is martyred, it would benefit the fight. Katniss wants to be a part of the rotation for guarding PETA and says that she could kill this smut that used to be PETA if she had to. Then on the phone, Haymitch calls her on punishing PETA for things he can't control and says PETA would never have treated her that way if the roles were reversed, which is true. And, and you know, she knows. Yes. <laughs> she then starts to make an effort and the whole squad helps confirm what is true through the real or not real game and more of the torture he and others underwent is revealed. Then the chapter ends when the squad is filming a more exciting <laughs> sort of propo. And Boggs unfortunately steps on an unmarked pod and his legs are blown off. Yeah, that takes a turn. Yeah, very, very quickly. I guess you probably should have expected it considering people were laughing and having a good time. <laughs> this is the Hunger Games. You can't last for long. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's sad because oddly enough, I actually like Boggs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when... Would I like some man in a uh, in the military? <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, I, I actually actually like him. Totally. Hmm. Well, why don't we go into our striking moments? What stood out to you during this read through? I also was thinking about that I like Jackson. Mm. I don't really remember paying a lot of attention to her in mm. the past, but it's great that you know she doesn't want Katniss. <laughs> to be on watch for PETA and when she's like oh I could kill him because he's not PETA he's a mutt and then she's like well that doesn't really recommend you for being on guard which is just great and then she's the one who devises the real or not real game to help PETA which yeah is just showing more concern and thoughtfulness somebody who's never really interacted with him Mm -hmm. it seems I don't know if it's just because she's a compassionate person or if it's because, like she said, she is very grateful to him because him warning District 13 about the bombings saved people's lives. Maybe some of those are the people she knows, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so I'm not sure exactly what's motivating her, but I appreciate seeing those glimpses of her personality and what she's doing. Yeah, absolutely. It really struck me how much the entire squad really is there for PETA and Jackson in particular. Mm. Um, you know, it made me think about whether that is also a part of the culture of District 13, this kind of communal support of one another. Mm. You know, it's kind of similar to like the camaraderie of soldiers, obviously, even though they haven't really been in action together yet. But just... Uh, the fact that they all call each other soldier blank, it's... I don't think they call Peter that, but, which is, <laughs> I mean, I don't like them calling Katniss or Finnick that either, but, but... Peter even less so considering his, uh, his 
status currently. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, I just, I think it, it's an interesting extension or it could be an interesting extension of that. Totally. Yeah. I was also, I mean, I, I've always liked the moment with Haymitch calling Katniss out for what she's doing to mm-hmm. Vita and helping her flip the roles to really consider what he would be doing for her if, if she had been the one that was taken and hijacked and all of that. And I just feel like it's it's such a human thing. And especially when kids and teenagers uh, are are involved, you know, I think people have a general hard time putting themselves in someone else's shoes. And it's interesting because Katniss is normally so good with empathy, mm-hmm. or, or she can be, certainly. But I think it's much harder for her when she feels betrayed or attacked, which is understandable because it's harder for anyone in in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just, I I like that because I think that is something that oftentimes as humans, we have to help our loved ones do is, is challenge them to think from someone else's perspective when they're only seeing it from their own and especially when they're being combative with it yeah, or judgmental or holding a grudge or, you know, whatever it is that can be negative because yeah, we can't always do it on our own. Mm -hmm. But I do love how as soon as she realizes she uses that imagination we've been talking a lot about and she imagines what it'd be like for PETA and within a paragraph is like, and my life would be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Like she's able to, once she decides to do so and sees how she has neglected to do so, when she puts herself in his shoes and tries to imagine what that would be like, that empathy is so strong and that imagination is so strong. Absolutely. And I really feel her in this chapter because even when she's trying to help after having these realizations, thinking about what it would be like to not know what was true anymore about anything and about some of the people you're closest to in your life, you know, mm-hmm. that she still doesn't really know how to express her feelings. It's it's still difficult for her after she tells him a few, just a few things about him. The line is, then I dive into my tent before I do something stupid like cry, which is just like such a perfect Katniss line. And it's definitely a line that I probably would have felt much more in high school uh, as well, because I, I hated showing vulnerability. And so, yeah, I just, I, even though I'm like, no, you're doing the wrong thing. Don't be mean to PETA. Like, he needs help. <laughs> but, like, I also get where she's coming from. Yeah. And th- this is really difficult for her, too. Yeah, I, I do appreciate how quickly she can turn it around and go back to a place of care instead of defensiveness. Absolutely, yeah. Another very, very short thing I just have to mention is that Finnick gave his rope to PETA. I know. <laughs> Why like, of course he, he did. I know. Yeah. And I, he probably didn't bring an extra rope no, with it's, him. No, it's his rope. I know. In the same way that he gave it to Katniss when she needed it, mm-hmm. he now gave it to Peta, And he gave advice based off of his experiences with Annie. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, Finnick is so not central 
in these chapters, but mm-hmm. he's still doing so much. Yeah. Yeah. He still makes a huge impact, exactly. even when he literally has a line or two. Yeah. It's just like, oh, Benek, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last thing that I was thinking about for the striking moments is Peta's list of nouns for making sense of how mm. to view her versus Katniss's list that she mentioned before with how she thought Peta saw her. Mm-hmm. Because when she walked out the first time she saw him since they knew about the hijacking and all of that, she had said, finally, he can see me for who I really am, violent, distrustful, manipulative, deadly, mm-hmm. right? Which we talked about previously when, when we were on that chapter. But now his list is friend, lover, victor, enemy, fiancé, target, mutt, neighbor, hunter, tribute, and then he adds ally. And so it's just, I thought it was really interesting to see, even when Peta is in his state that he's in and trying to understand what is real and what was manipulated and twisted, he still can see Katniss for more of who she is than she can when she's thinking of just the worst of herself. Yeah. Which, yeah, I, I, I love that because I think we've talked about throughout this whole read through, starting from the first book, that I think Katniss really underestimates herself and she can be really hard on herself and she can also harbor so much guilt like thinking about oh add add people to the the list of people that i killed you know and i i understand why she's thinking that way but it's interesting to see that juxtaposed to someone who was literally chemically poisoned to think the worst of her Mm. is still seeing other things in her yeah absolutely but what about you what are your striking moments Yeah, I had a few that related to language and and how characters kind of operate. I thought it was interesting the the time when Katniss was going to ask who's in charge. Does she answer to the director or the commander? Which was really interesting because it's coming from Katniss, you know? It's like she's so defiant as a person that now she's wondering who she should be taking orders from or to defy i don't know you know uh but yeah i just i thought that was an interesting moment where she is trying to play at least the part of the dutiful soldier while she plans her escape which i find interesting that she's also seeing that juxtaposition of the different priorities of what they're doing out there well yeah i mean it makes it quite confusing Mm -hmm. you you really shouldn't be combining these things yeah i mean (laughs) There's a whole other question about the ethics of making battle propaganda, but (laughs) productions. um. Absolutely. And this read-through, I think, was the first time that I really saw that as contributing to Boggs' injury. Mm -hmm. Because they are distracted, and they are not focused on a single mission. They are not Mm -hmm. working with the kind of military precision that District 13 is known for. Not to say that this hidden pod wouldn't have become an issue 
regardless. But I do think that that, yeah, is just an interesting dynamic at play to see how, in some ways, putting them together as a propo team is in of itself dangerous. Absolutely. And it's just seems unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Because do those fighting really need these to keep going how many of them can even access watching them mm-hmm. like it seems more like it's for the people in the districts who aren't there in these battles than it is for the morale of the troops or whatever totally and it's like this is dangerous if the area that they're in already doesn't have a bunch of peacekeepers it's already been abandoned like leave it mm-hmm. you know And you're just putting all of these people in danger, including the film crew, to do something that, yeah, shouldn't matter. The people in the districts have been dying this entire time when they first overthrew the peacekeepers in their districts. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not like they haven't been willing to take the cost of, of this revolution. And so... I don't know. I don't I don't know if there's some secret underlying tactic for this. Yeah. Killing any of the victors off accidentally so that they can use them maybe not even as a martyr to help people keep going. I mean maybe, but maybe also to use them as a martyr as you're trying to gather up the shambles of Penem under some unified leadership to point to dead Katniss and be like, she would have been behind this because she's not there to say, no, I wouldn't. Absolutely. So, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know what is going on with this, but it's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people are dying because of it. I mean, Leagues 2, right, already died because mm-hmm. of an unmarked pod. And so it's really dangerous like i could understand maybe having them on standby in case enough other people die who are fighting against the peacekeepers there and so you need reinforcements but having them do anything at this point when they're not needed is frivolous Mm -hmm. in my opinion (laughs) yeah and yeah i mean it isn't combat it's yeah them shooting a bunch of buildings and pods and things like that not fighting against peacekeepers, not against, you know, fighting against the capital. It's it's very interesting now that Katniss is, in the perspective of a soldier, how she is so far removed from those discussions, from the propos, from uh, all the things that she was right in the middle of for most of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sing, speaking of perspectives, <gasps> why don't we move into our From Another Point of View section, where we think about perspectives other than Katniss's. So who would you like to talk about? So there are two main ones I was thinking about in this chapter. And the first one is Boggs. Mm-hmm. Because I imagine it would be so frustrating to see Peta arrive, right? Mm-hmm. And know that not only is this bad for him, it's potentially lethal for Katniss. And it's bad for everyone there because if he devolves into some sort of episode of violence or 
arguing with himself or whatever, like that endangers everyone there. And it would just feel like you don't care about any of our lives. Totally. And having access to coin where most of the people in this group don't, it falls to him to say something and then just being refused when you're the one on the ground risking your life and coin is safe in district 13 i could imagine would just make you livid yeah him trying to advocate for katniss's safety when he already clearly has a suspicious opinion of coin that's putting a target on him too yeah then i was just imagining him weighing if he should tell Katniss what he really thinks. Because, yeah, that makes him even more of a target. Again, it is giving information to somebody who's still so young and still not doing great emotionally either. He has to trust her to to give her this information that could get him killed, I'm sure. Yeah. Him making that decision to give her what so many others have not Hamish, plutarch coin all of these different people who have kept information from katniss even to her own potential detriment death danger certainly he doesn't do that he makes a different choice Mm -hmm. he would rather put himself in danger than not give her as much information as he possibly can that could be helpful to help her uh, survive and also make decisions for herself and so I just like I respect that so much this is the first time he's really in this position and he makes the right decision and you know I, I kind of wonder also with him respecting her wishes to be on the rotation for guarding PETA instead of just letting Jackson or other people make the decision for her that she can't uh whether it's a good choice or not I mean I think by then it was a fine choice but Mm. he's letting her have some agency and I don't know if that's always what he would have done because that's the type of person he is or if part of it is in a reaction to seeing what has been done to her, seeing how she's been used, seeing how she's still being used, even in these incredibly dangerous situations, and bring Pete in to make it more exciting. You know, it's like war is not supposed to be exciting. And yeah, I just kind of wonder like how long he's been frustrated mm-hmm. watching these different things happen. You know, is he even frustrated to be with Squad 451 because he's one of the chief security people? You know, he's up there. Wouldn't he be with people who are actually fighting? You would think that they would utilize him for that. Mm -hmm. Or maybe he requested to be there to try to protect Katniss and protect all of them because he thought the motivation behind sending them there was dubious. So... Yeah, I was just thinking about how, sadly, his final days are probably just very frustrating, and he has to watch people 
filming propos and trying to make them convincing and things like that when he knows like other fellow District 13 people are being killed in other areas of this city. Mm-hmm. And he has to make the choices of, of where he wants to be, I mean, if he is given the choice, and um, how he can best help and protect the people there. Yeah, he's in such a, a interesting position. And every time I read through this chapter, I've been surprised by how honest he is. Mm-hmm. Because... There's not a single amount of, well, we don't know if she wants to kill you, but she probably does. Or if she Mm -hmm. did want to kill you, this might be the reason. It's literally just, yes, I agree, she wants to kill you. And it's taking Katniss so seriously. It's seeing her as someone who is logical and perceptive and able to understand everything that's going on in a deep and nuanced way Mm -hmm. but also able to drill down to the most important elements which is that you can't trust these leaders Mm -hmm. so yeah i i find boggs's conversation with katniss there really interesting particularly when he says that he wants to help her because she's earned it which i think definitely comes from him seeing her have to deal with all of the things that she's had to deal with And, yeah, yeah, probably advocating for her in ways that we don't even see. But it also makes me wonder how much Boggs is then also captivated by the kind of stories around Katniss. Because Mm -hmm. does he think that the other victors have earned it the same way, even though some of them have gone through equal or even greater terrors um, Mm -hmm. and tortures? So... Yeah, it just, it, that that line kind of stood out to me as like, oh, I wonder what's, like, what it is about Boggs and Katniss that leads to him seeing her this way. If there is mm. a kind of him wanting to take care of her, him wanting, him respecting her, you know, what, what's going on there? Because this is, this is a big deal, like you said. Absolutely. And I, I would wager that he wants to protect all of the victors Mm -hmm. to some degree because I don't think it was just to protect Katniss that he didn't report that she disobeyed orders Mm. and, you know, his nose got broken and everything because that was after Katniss had forced Coin into this deal that Coin said if she doesn't deliver on any of these things then the deal is nullified right to protect and give amnesty to the other victors and so i would think it wasn't just to protect her i mean probably to some degree but yeah and he also goes on the he leads the all-volunteer mission to rescue them too Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a great point yeah i mean maybe he has felt guilty Mm being there relatively safe in District 13 all of these years and watching these kids in the Hunger Games have to face these horrors and then even after they win, have to face more and more and more of being paraded out and mentor other kids that die and things like that. Maybe he feels like... He owes them because mm-hmm. they have taken the brunt of the capital's tyranny, and he hasn't had to. Yeah. Oh, Boggs. 
Did you say you had another perspective? Yeah, the other was, it's not a specific person necessarily, but I was just wondering about the film crew Mm. during this time. What do they think about everything that's going on? What do they think about being there? What do they think about PETA arriving? Do they see it more from the perspective of, oh, maybe this footage does need, because like this is their industry. This This is what they do, and they can tell that the footage isn't super captivating. Or... What do they think about Katniss's attitude towards PETA mm-hmm. when they were all sitting in a circle eating and Katniss had noticed that people were kind of giving her uncomfortable looks? I'd, I'm wondering, were any of those the film crew? Because mm-hmm. the film crew spent a lot more time with Katniss than they have with PETA. I don't even know if they've spent any time with PETA mm-hmm. besides filming him learning how to assemble a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I just I kind of wonder if they're at all disappointed in her for reacting this way to Peta, or if they have her back, if they're worried for her and like want to protect her at all costs and see Peta in a more villainous light or something like that. Because I think it's really interesting how silent they are in these past couple chapters. Mm. Sure, we don't hear a lot from some of the other people on the squad, but we have heard a bit more from them when they're involved in things. But they don't say anything, they don't really have that many interactions, and so I was thinking about what it would be like for them to be in their home Mm -hmm. and see it be destroyed. Because we've only interacted with them outside of the capital and now they're filming the action of things being destroyed or the aftermath of the destruction of their own streets their homes places that they've walked by maybe where friends lived or their favorite shop or whatever it is and I could just imagine that that would be really difficult and they don't want to show how difficult it is because Mm -hmm. they signed up for this because they are on the side of the rebellion and they want the capital to be toppled but I'm sure still seeing it right in front of your eyes would be emotional and if you're trying to suppress that because you don't want to have other people from District 13 or these victors who have been through so much more than you judge you for being sad that some of the beauty of your city is in ruins and the memories that you had there that yes you were only able to have there because of the privileges off of the backs of these people Mm -hmm. yeah I I don't know I was just thinking about how it's probably really uncomfortable and it's probably difficult and maybe sometimes they have like quiet conversations with each other or shared looks but not only seeing it but also filming it lets them or forces them to interact with it also in a more focused almost intimate way Mm -hmm. than if they were just walking by uh so yeah i was just i was thinking about what they were going through yeah that's really interesting Because I imagine even if it's not places that they're familiar with themselves, it still must be very eerie walking through a neighborhood that they know of or that looks like neighborhoods they've been in that, that, you know, is home. That's empty. That's where that big party happened Mm -hmm. three years ago or, yeah, whatever it would be. 
or yeah, just, you know, I grew up in a residential area just like this or, Mm -hmm. you know, and to see it completely bereft of people in ruins with all these dangers around. Yeah. I, I remember once, one day I walked to school and the entire time I didn't see a single person or car and it was weird. Like it felt like something was wrong. Mm-hmm. in the world because there just was no one else around <laughs> yeah that's weird yeah <laughs> eerie very very eerie so yeah I, I can only imagine how more intense that would be when they're in their, that situation well and you also never know if you're gonna come across somebody that you know mm-hmm. that's dead or that isn't dead yet and then one of the these people you're with kills them to be walking in with the overthrowers, even if you are ideologically on the side of the overthrowers, yeah, would just be really difficult, I think. Agreed. But what about you? Who did you bring for this section? We've actually talked a little bit about a couple of mine, mm. um, but a couple other brief ones I have is I was wondering what made Hamish finally call Katniss out for her mm. behavior. Because I do think that that's a, a really important moment to, yeah, do the what would Peta do card, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and he has clearly had this kind of perspective in the past when he says, in a hundred lifetimes, you wouldn't be worthy of that, that boy, mm-hmm. you know. And he sees how Peta's actions are so good. And he compares Katniss to that. Peta came immediately over when they heard that they were going back into the into the games and catching fire, and then it took her some time to do so. You know, like I'm sure he had this thought that she was being unfair to Peta, and that certainly she was acting in a way that Peta never would beforehand. And so I wonder what led him to not express that in the past. Mm-hmm. Was it out of concern for her grief over losing Peta? Mm-hmm. Was it in not wanting to tread too harshly in their relationship now that it's kind of on the mend more? Or was it just hoping that it wouldn't come to anything important as long as they were apart and now they're stuck together in a life or death situation and there's no ability for them not to deal with the things head on? Yeah. Or is it that he's been spending too much time with Johanna and she's slipping him therapy insights for the therapy (laughs) he never went to that could be it Uh, dr richard Ninegard. (laughs) sees him five times a day (laughs) but yeah i i think it it is an interesting question is part of it he's scared Mm -hmm. for her he's scared if she provokes him to something and he means scared for for Peta as well because if Peta is provoked and tries to attack Katniss he's probably worried he's going to get killed Mm -hmm. by anyone else on the team possibly Katniss herself which would obviously destroy Katniss so yeah I wonder if part of it's that he's scared for both of their lives and yet again he is distanced from it he's not there Mm. there isn't the security that they had in 13 and he can't see everything that's happening and so he's gonna do a little more than he would normally do to to try to hope that it'll help in the end Mm -hmm. one or both of them not ending up dead 
Also, maybe he's just fed up with her. Could be (laughs) Yeah, or a mix of these, for sure. (laughs) But the other perspective I was thinking of was Peta's. You know, just generally, I find it interesting how he is really slowly trying to piece things together. How he has these long pauses after he asks questions, and as he comes up with new questions to ask, and as he's really obviously combating this idea of trying to understand what is real and what isn't, and trying to trust the people around him, in particular trying to trust Katniss, and just how how difficult that is. I, I find it very telling how some of the questions that he asked were about things like colors or food um, mm-hmm. and those kinds of elements of scenes and how he can go back to his memories and still connect with yeah his perceptions on baked goods and dresses and, and other kinds of, of elements. But I, I also started to recognize a bit about how in the past I have felt less connected to Peta's growth in this part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned the last episode of the episode before how I wanted to to really look at what Peta's experience is like in these upcoming chapters. And one of the things that I realized when I was trying to think through his perspective and why I haven't connected with his growth here in the past is that here Peta is entirely focused on asking questions, on rebuilding his sense of reality, doing these really foundational kinds of work. And the moments that I really think about when I think about Peta's character are often him being wise or profound or caring. Mm -hmm. And he simply can't do that in this kind of chapter. You know, we can't have him telling Katniss that he wants to take care of her or that he wants to be compassionate to other people or or these other kinds of things, like those aren't the kinds of things that are on his mind the same way as he has them when he's, yeah, saying he doesn't want to be a piece in their games and he's doing these other kinds of things. He is in such a different precarious state here that he's just not explicitly having those conversations the same way because he's so much more focused on these very foundational building blocks. And so, yeah, I just... It helped me, I, I think, to really try to look through his character and to, to realize that it's not just that element of what I find, you know, to be some of my favorite writing about Peta is just not here mm-hmm. because these chapters aren't written as well or something like that. But it's actually because there are different contexts here that are happening and that that kind of explains it a little bit more. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But we should probably move into our touch points. These are when we connect things that we're seeing in this chapter to aspects of our own society. So what touch points did you have? So there are two main ones I was thinking about. I was thinking about when Katniss was thinking, my fixation with assassinating Snow has allowed me to ignore a much more difficult problem, which is trying to help Peta. Mm-hmm. And she thinks, I can't even conceive of a plan. And so there were two kind of parallels that I was thinking about for that. The first of which is, I think it's just a very true thing, that it's often easier to choose violence than difficult, vulnerable, emotional work Mm -hmm. that 
has no immediate guarantee of a good outcome or solution, even a solution. So I, I was thinking about people having physical altercations. Like, it's so much easier to punch someone than say you hurt my feelings yeah. or your comment made me feel insecure or whatever it is. <laughs> that shouldn't be the case, right? But it mm. is, uh, at least in our social context, especially when you get gender dynamics going in there and stuff like that as well. Yeah. So yeah, I was just thinking about violence. Yeah, just being this this symptom of the underlying diseases that are riddling our society. But it can be so much easier to focus on that than actually the problems. Yeah. Because they don't, you know, how do you even begin to conceive of a plan, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or one that, that could work. <laughs> I can conceive of lots of plans, but uh, they may not happen. Or even if you have a good plan and you have a good way to get there, it still may fail. And so having that hope that something could heal or change or be better and then having that taken away is really devastating so i think sometimes people just can't try mm -hmm. and i felt like that's kind of where she's at and the second way is is, is similar but this isn't what katniss is doing at all <laughs> but it reminds me of just the trend of politicians like trying to distract from the real issues that plague mm. the country with other things like it's easier to focus on something that doesn't directly involve us or something that we don't at least have the feeling of responsibility for even if we actually do have responsibility and we just don't know it or we just don't want to admit it you know yeah for example, like, let's focus on the Red Scare communism instead of inequalities in the U.S. and mm -hmm. the Vietnam War instead of <laughs> racial politics in this country or gender politics, queer politics. You know, these things are going on at the same time. But let's focus on this war. Let's put the resources there. Or let's focus on extremist Muslim terrorism or the war in Iraq instead of domestic white male terrorism and or white supremacy that is a much bigger problem in this country. And those things are harder. Mm -hmm. Those things are hard to solve. I mean, and also we could probably solve some of the more external terrorism mm -hmm. if, if we just weren't Imperialists. the worst imperialists. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Republicans are very famous for these types of distractions. <laughs> I mean, not only Republicans, but especially Republicans have mm -hmm. done this for decades and, and continue to do it now. You know, these distractions to, to try to avoid some of the real issues, the big issues, the things that are breaking the country apart and mm -hmm. the world apart. Because it's harder to deal with those issues, and also they don't want to deal with those issues. Mm -hmm. You don't get that immediate gratification, or and electorally, you don't get the immediate result uh, of the spending and the resources and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those things are less easy to talk about to some degree sometimes. 
because it's super easy to just say a buzzword and have everybody rallying with their pitchforks and whatever. Mm -hmm. But talking about redlining and, you know, things like that you need more vocabulary, you need more education, you need more, you know. So even people who care about those things, which (laughs) are not Republicans, (laughs) like often don't focus on them either mm-hmm. obviously Katniss isn't doing this in a malicious way like this is often done in the political sphere but she is focusing all of her attention on killing snow on this violent act of trying to do what she's trying to do partially to avoid having to deal with the pain and vulnerability and emotions that come with not only what's happened to PETA and what that means for her interactions with this person that has been a support for her through some of the most traumatic moments of her life, but also have to sit with what does her life mean to her now in the aftermath of all of this. And it's difficult so she just focuses on something that she thinks she can accomplish and something that would be more gratifying to carry out her anger yeah and and i think in a way she also sees the hijacking of Peta as another act of violence against her Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she's focused more on that than she is on how it's also an act of violence against PETA and what that looks like for him in an ongoing way Mm -hmm. and how she could alleviate that. Her response is, yeah, anger and directed violence of her own rather than that hard healing and support and dealing with his difficult journey and her own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, part of this was against her, and she had a traumatic, almost death experience because of it. Mm-hmm. But also, if she ha- if she has to sit with what was done to Peta, then she has to sit with the guilt that she feels for doing what she did in the arena, yeah. for it being Peta that was the one that was taken when she had told herself that he was going to be the one that she saved Mm -hmm. and that's also really difficult and in the aftermath of everything else that's going on i understand why she doesn't want to deal with that totally but it's also not healthy (laughs) and the other one that i had is about the death and torture of darius and lavinia Mm -hmm. i was thinking about deaths occurring while people are incarcerated Mm. and how they can definitely be suspicious. I was actually listening to NPR a few months ago and they were reporting on some death reports from prisons and I think discrepancies. Uh, There was something about, and I'm so annoyed because (laughs) I looked and looked and looked to try to track down where this segment was and make sure you didn't just dream it. (laughs) I didn't. I actually heard it twice, two times in like uh, a span of 
a week or, or something like that. But I like came in at the end of it each time. So like I didn't get all the information and I've tried to find it looking you know, with keywords and everything like that. Couldn't find it, which is very frustrating. But the gist of what I heard <laughs> was there was something about over half, over 50% of hundreds of reported deaths in prisons and jails that they examined, it was either that it couldn't have or it was that it shouldn't have been classified as natural causes. Mm. So it was a lot. But some things that I did find actual sources and like, you know, the, the stats for, there was a different NPR article from 2020 on this one prison in Mississippi. It was saying that in less than four months at this one prison, more than 30 inmates had died in state custody. And according to the news releases from the Mississippi Department of Corrections, some were attributed to prisoners attacking each other, some were supposed suicides, some from natural causes or illness, and one of them was from a drug-related incident. But even with those that they gave breakdowns for, that still left 10 classified as unknown pending autopsy reports, mm -hmm. but with, quote, no foul play suspected. <laughs> But the thing about death investigations done by the Department of Corrections <laughs> is that they could literally cover up whatever they want or <laughs> maybe not even cover it up and just not care because nothing's really going to happen mm -hmm. anyway. Uh, action's not going to be taken to help those who are imprisoned. And we know that private prisons, for-profit disgusting prisons are supposed to be checked on periodically to determine if they're following the terms of their contract and LOL. stuff like that. <laughs> and reports from those shockingly show that there's deep and systematic problems in these facilities. No way. I know, right? Twist. Yet, when the reports are sent to contracting officials in Washington, nothing really happens. And they don't impose the full fines that they could on these for-profit prisons or force them to change. And mm. so I was just kind of thinking about how or even if the families of those killed in capital custody, including D Darius and Lavinia, like if they are told the truth mm. about what is executions just behind closed doors, or if it's covered up, if it said it's something else, if it's, oh, it was suicide, you know, like these things are can be very easy to say, but that doesn't mean it's true. Also, I'm wondering if families, if they are actually even ever told that their kid or their brother whatever are dead because there have definitely been cases in the united states where families of someone who died slash maybe was murdered who knows while in custody like weren't notified for weeks or months like mm. there was even one article i was reading about a case where 
It was a year later that they told the family. Wow. And so, yeah, I was just thinking about how when people control access to information and they control the facilities, how do we trust what they say? It's the, you know, who watches the watchman, right? There, there's no oversight if they are the ones who are... <laughs> doing the oversight. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just very, very dubious. Totally. <laughs> so, yeah, those are my fun points. What about you? <laughs> well, one thing that, that came to mind was how one of PETA's questions was about the District 12 destruction. And he asked, the fire was his fault. Oh, I know. And... I so love how the squad says not real Mm -hmm. and how they highlight, no, it was Snow's. Snow did the same thing in District 13. You know, like this is what the Capitol does. And it's like a survivor's guilt kind of thing that people can blame themselves for violent actions by the state Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe even be in retribution or something. But either way, comes with an understanding that, well, this is what the state does. Mm-hmm. And so I provoked it through my actions. And so I am at fault in some way, which yeah. is just another way to... Just another sort of state violence. Exactly. And a way to make people have that guilt to have, you know, a kind of victim blaming where instead of actually having the focus on the perpetrators of this violence... It's on the choices that other people made. And I see that Katniss and so many of the other characters throughout this series are struggling with those same kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. Um, That they're all making these choices that they suffer through the consequences of blaming themselves, feeling that guilt, even as we don't see any guilt in the capital. So yeah, that, that was just a profound moment for me. The big touch point I wanted to talk about, though, was about PETA's hijacking and how it mirrors real-life attempts by our government and other governments around the world to research mind control. Of course it does. Of course it does. So, for those who don't know, in the 1950s and 1970s, the CIA was investigating all sorts of methods to try to see if they could develop ways to control people's minds, behaviors, actions. I'm just going to read the first few sentences from the Wikipedia summary of this program, mm-hmm. which is called MK Ultra, because it lays out really all of the aspects of this that show how, re- how awful just, and absurd it is. But just because it's from Wikipedia does not mean that it's maybe not true. Oh, no, I'm not <laughs> going to read out the nine footnotes in this one three-sentence section. <laughs> yeah. Project MKUltra was an illegal human experimentation program designed and undertaken by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, intended to develop procedures and identify drugs that could be used in interrogations to weaken individuals and force confessions through brainwashing and psychological torture. It began in 1953 and was halted in 1973. MKUltra used numerous methods to manipulate its subjects' mental states and brain functions, such as the covert administration of high doses of psychoactive drugs, especially LSD, and other chemicals. Electroshocks, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, 
verbal and sexual abuse, in addition to other forms of torture. So this probably... Sexual abuse for mind control. Mm-hmm. The 1950s tax dollars, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, gentle folk. I don't know. <laughs> what would be that? What's a gender neutral? <laughs> awesome people. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. So yeah, from in this this 20-year period, uh, probably about 10,000 people were part of these studies, these experiments for mind control. And typically these were, these were done without the person knowing about it. Many of the people who were a part of these experiments were prisoners, soldiers, uh, institutionalized patients, veterans, uh, sex workers, and just general citizens who are caught in kind of uh, uh, traps and things like that. Particularly the vulnerable people. Absolutely. Yeah. And massive amounts of resources were being put towards this. Uh, it actually came about because people thought that during the Korean War, communists might have been using similar techniques. So it's like, oh, well, if they're researching this, we have to research it too. Communists. Yeah. But if communists are not using capitalism as much, we don't have to do that. <laughs> but their torture. Oh, yes, yes absolutely. That, that we should adopt. Yeah. And yeah, it was clearly as a way of going after people who are already considered threats and then trying to coerce confessions and things like that from them to torture confessions out of them or to give them enough drugs that they might say something that they wouldn't normally say so all to do with spycraft much of this say something i am dragging you <laughs> exactly that was their theme song yeah <laughs> um and much of this was done without the people's knowledge that they were even being dosed or that they were being experimented on and happening to American citizens when the CIA does not have the authority to operate within the United States on American citizens. Uh, so, like, <laughs> extremely illegal against the mandate of the agency and obviously extremely immoral. And we absolutely did also do it to non-American citizens. I mean, of course. Yes. <laughs> it just wasn't illegal then. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. God. Why? I mean, it was illegal Why? to, like, the Geneva Conventions, but since when do we listen to those anyway? <laughs> since never. Since we attended and still like, nah. So yeah, so the only reason that we actually know about these things coming out is because of a filing error. Because <laughs> in the 1970s, after Watergate and... Uh, it's also the only American way, right? Right. <laughs> the filing uh, error. As there was more skepticism of the government and questions raised about government actions... The CIA was like, okay, burn it all. Destroy all the files that you can. Unfortunately for them, 20,000 files were misfiled. And so they were not destroyed with all of the other evidence of MKUltra. And a Freedom of Information Act request was able to get access to these files and release them to the public. And so you can go through and actually read through them. Uh, I use them in some of my American history classes uh, to kind of have students think about yeah what conspiracies have occurred and haven't occurred by the u.s government i, mean, I don't know what was burned then you mm -hmm. know yeah. it's yeah. just like it makes you wonder did nepotism let this come out <laughs> <laughs> hiring someone who wasn't really qualified for the position <laughs> because they're in the family no. and they filed these things wrong 
I guess this one time, thanks nepotism. <laughs> thanks nepotism and bureaucracy's failings. Yeah. <laughs> or people just really not caring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, this last semester, I had a student who was involved in medical science. And oh, yeah. so when they were reading through the documents, they literally couldn't get over the complete lack of any kind of scientific acumen used in the experiments <laughs> uh, uh, that they were all so far-fetched and done in such immoral and unethical ways and ways that didn't actually produce good science that they... I kept trying to get them to like, engage more yeah, with like exactly. the historical questions and they were just like, no, but this can't have happened because this is just awful. And I was like, it, it did happen though. <laughs> yes, it is awful. And yes, it also happened. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Those things unfortunately are not mutually exclusive. Precisely. Yeah. Also, have you paid attention to politics lately? A lot of people don't believe in science. <laughs> 50, 70 years later. Yeah. So. Oh, I shouldn't be laughing. It's just so absurd. I mean, that's it's the thing. It's just so that... bad and absurd. And, oh, God. It's, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, we're 50 years out from this even coming out into the public and 70 years out from when it began. And so, you know, there is a disconnect there. And, you know, mind control is funny because, like, LSD <laughs> is not going to make people be brainwashed yeah but but it still happened to real people it did happen to real people and yeah. the methods they used you know some of them yeah are are more ridiculous than others but uh some of them obviously were, were extremely torturous and and awful and were being done at the government's behest uh mm -hmm. and so the hijacking that PETA goes through and the torture that we see them go through shouldn't actually be considered a fantastical or dystopian yeah. vision of what powerful governments can do because our government has done essentially or attempted to do essentially the same thing yeah i mean not even powerful governments it just has to be a government true really unfortunately you just need powerful people within whatever sphere yeah yeah so yeah touch points always uplifting <laughs> Why don't we go into our wonderments? No. What uh, what questions are on your mind after reading this chapter? So, Hamish saying that Peter doesn't understand what's happened to him, and he doesn't know that he was sent by Coin mm -hmm. into battle, hoping that he'd kill Katniss. Because I think he does understand what's happened to him. He's smart and perceptive and... I just think that he doesn't know how to, or doesn't have the tools to help him manage what's happened to him. So I just, I'm just very curious, because that would be my assumption, but Hamish is saying something different, and is he saying something different because that that's true for PETA in this circumstance, or is he underestimating PETA? like he's underestimated PETA in the past. Mm. Obviously not telling him about the plan, even though PETA is great at acting. Yeah. He would have been fine. He underestimated him. He and Katniss didn't tell him about Snow visiting Katniss and threatening if they didn't quell the rebellions. 
and so I I just kind of wonder if he's doing the same thing here mm. and how much Peta is aware of everything that's going on. He just is trying to manage yeah. what's happened and what people are trying to force him into mm-hmm. when he really has very little power in these circumstances. Yeah. Like, don't, don't you go underestimating PETA, Hamish? Yeah, Hamish. <laughs> Come on. Well, I'm wondering what pods look like. They mention that... I would assume they all look different. I guess, but, like, they mentioned that they, they shot one that was, like, above a alcove or something, and I'm just like, but what did they shoot exactly? You know, like, I just, I, I never have gotten a really strong visualization of what they look like in my mind, which is another element why I, I think in the past I've felt kind of disconnected from this part of the book, where so much of the threat is something that I have a hard time visualizing. Mm. I always imagined, I don't know if this is true, but I always imagined them so hidden that they're hidden inside a light sconce or they are, yeah, underneath a part of this part of the stones on the road. And so if they're not activated, it doesn't really matter. But if they are activated, then they'll trigger if you touch them or go past them like maybe some would be motion sensor based and other ones would be weight or whatever based um totally but then yeah i'm like okay what does that activation look like when it when a gun goes off is that from a hidden compartment is it something mm-hmm. that materializes out of nanotechnology like i just it still is kind of just hard for me to to see so i guess yeah i'm, I'm wondering what they look like and and We'll probably be keeping an eye out for descriptions that maybe answer that question mm-hmm, in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we go into our intentions? What we want to take away from this discussion and this chapter. So, what's your intention for this week? I think my intention is probably to try to be aware of when there are times that I'm. Not using violence as a distraction, but using other things as a distraction Mm -hmm. from dealing with, yeah, more painful, vulnerable, emotional work that doesn't necessarily have a out, doesn't have a solution, doesn't have a immediate positive outcome. I don't think it always has to be a negative thing because sometimes you have to function, you have to get Mm -hmm. through. Whether it, whether it's personal or just the world, you know, yeah, that is uh, can be very grim, as you found in our touch point section. <laughs> <laughs> just just to try to be aware of it instead of just going about being distracted. At least, if I'm going to distract myself, make more conscious choices. Mm-hmm. I guess. Hmm. That's good. But what about you? What's your intention? My intention is to be a little bit less critical of myself in the moments where when I can't come up with the words to express or to address a situation. She mentions how there's kind of long pauses with PETA where she just doesn't know what to say. And that's something that I can feel pretty regularly, particularly in 
times of conflict or difficult conversations when I either feel like I don't know exactly what's right to say or I feel like there's nothing I could say that would meet the weight of the conversation. So I'll just say nothing, which I think is not helpful either. So yeah, I, I think I want to be a little less critical of myself because as we see with Katniss, sometimes, you know, that does happen, but also be less critical of the possibilities of what I could say and instead just try to be honest and caring and let that kind of guide me instead of feeling like if I don't know exactly what the perfect thing to say is, I should say nothing at all. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, that's going to wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we are going to be moving on to Chapter 20, where Katniss and Cressida do some improv. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon to get you access to all the special content we've been making along with our read-through and to help us keep the show sustainable. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.